So have you ever ignored something because you knew what the implications were if you really began to think about it? Perhaps it might be an annual checkup at a doctor's office, and you know that the doctor is going to tell you you need to live a healthier life, and you don't really want to go there. Or perhaps it's a financial advisor that's going to tell you to get out of debt and help fix your financial situation, and you kind of put it off and put it off and put it off and just ignore it. Or it might be a room in your house or a drawer that you just haven't touched in like a long time. And you're like, if I were to go there, I would be faced with my lack of cleanliness and actually have to clean it, right? You know that you should address these things, but you don't really want to remind yourself of them. Because if you did, you might be reminded of your own inadequacies and shortcomings, and you will need to change or you will look yourself in the mirror and have to seek to make a change. But we all know ignoring these things never makes them go away, right? (laughs) Christians can neglect thinking much about God's holiness for similar reasons. You might be able to think about God's love or his mercy, but his holiness makes a demand on your life. It confronts you in your sin, challenges you in your apathy, and compels you to serve in ways that you don't really want to. But beholding and embracing your holy God helps you worship him more, love him more, and serve him more. So today I want to direct you to Isaiah 6. And in Isaiah 6, which is written 700 years before the life of Jesus, God is commissioning his prophet Isaiah to carry forward a message of judgment and hope to the nation. But before God is going to send Isaiah out, he's first going to reveal to him what God is like, what he's like. I hope that Isaiah's vision will help you to behold your God, behold your holy God. And as you behold your holy God, it will help you to repent before this holy God and also serve this holy God. So the first thing we see in this text in the first six verses, or the first four verses, is that we ought to behold our holy God. So behold your holy God. These times that Isaiah lived in were very tumultuous. They were unstable. They were chaotic. The nation had descended into sin. God says of his people in Isaiah 1 to 5, the whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness to it. The nation was thoroughly corrupt. Everyone loved a bribe. The religious leaders were really unjust. And the land is absolutely filled with idols. They were supposed to be worshiping the one true God. But they're worshiping everything else. And he's like second to their idols. King Uzziah had ruled for 50 years, and he had just died. So one of the key visible sources of stability left in the nation was gone. Yet in this year of instability and upheaval, Isaiah the prophet gets a vision from this holy God. The first verse reads, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Even when human kings die and evil seems to be triumphing, our God reigns, and he reigns in our day too. Your holy God is presented as a king in this passage. Like a king, he sits on a throne. This throne is high and lifted up. We aren't told how high, but we can imagine it would be very, very high. The throne of a king conveys power, majesty, and glory. Scripture notes that King Solomon sat on a great ivory throne, overlaid with the finest gold with six steps, and twelve lions on the side of each step. We don't know if these are real lions or engraved lions, but I can just imagine real lions and how awesome that would be. <laughs> the, the, the author then says that in 1 Kings 10.20 that the like of it was never made in the kingdom. If Solomon's throne is this majestic, this glorious, imagine how majestic our gods is, the king of the entire universe. But it is not just his throne that shows you that he's a king. It is also his robe. He is a robe that fills the entire temple. Just as the length of the train of a bride's dress conveys a sense of beauty and glory, the length of the train of a robe of a king communicates how majestic and powerful they are. And this robe, it fills the entire room. Imagine this entire room just filled with a meticulously crafted robe. It's beautiful. This is no ordinary king. And this holy God also has servants. And I'm not talking about human servants. I'm talking about angels. These servants are heavenly creatures called seraphim. These seraphim fly over the Lord's highly exalted throne. And Isaiah gives us details about their key features as they reveal the nature of God's holiness. The seraphim have been created with a distinct purpose of being in God's holy presence. The text says each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So I don't know about you, I've never seen a creature with six wings. I've only seen two. And this is unlike any creature on this earth. The seraphim were not created with six wings because it looks cool. I mean, it does look really cool. But they were given six wings so they could be in the presence of a holy God. Why? Because getting this close to God's holiness is dangerous. Just as a fireman goes into the fire and he needs to guard himself against the blaze and the heat of the flames, the seraphim need to be guarded against the penetrating gaze of God's holiness. There are two wings to cover the seraphim's face. So they don't drop dead looking at the Lord. God is so holy that creatures cannot see him and live. You, you might remember the story of Moses. When Moses asked to see God, God says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Here we see the Lord in verse in Isaiah 6, but notice that it never mentions that we actually see his face or what it looks like. 
The point is for us that God's holiness, his majesty, his purity overwhelms creatures that come near to him. The seraphim also have wings to cover their feet and to fly. This is because even the ground that this holy God is near is so affected by his holiness that it would strike down a creature that would walk on it. Think about the story with Moses as Moses encounters a vision of God in the burning bush and God calls out to him. And as Moses seeks to get closer to the burning bush, which represents our Lord, the Lord says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place that you are standing is holy ground. That is how holy our God is. That even being in his presence would kill a man. The seraphim communicates the main message of the text as they call to one another. They say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This message gets to the heart of who your God is. In the Hebrew language, repetition of a word is used to emphasize a point. So when a point is emphasized three times, that is highly significant. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is at the center of who God is. He is the holy of holies, most holy, abundantly holy. R.C. Sproul points out that the Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. Surely those are still attributes of his character, but holiness is the central aspect of who God is. But what is holiness? I think the way we are most familiar with God's holiness is that it means moral purity. It means to be a morally pure and blameless person. And and that is true of God. God is holy because he cannot sin. And he 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 is absolutely morally perfect. Holiness does describe God's absolute moral purity. But it, all, it means that, but it also means more than that. The original word in the Hebrew means to be separate or to be set apart. God set apart different things that are devoted to him, like holy priest, a holy nation, a holy place. These things are holy because God sets them apart. But what does it mean for God himself to be set apart? Well, God is different than any other creature in creation because he created them all. They're all dependent upon him. He is the great other. God's holiness is an attribute that Christians are called to imitate. You are called to flee sin, obey the Lord, and be devoted to him. And if you do that, it can be said of you that you are living a holy life. But there is an aspect of holiness which can only describe God. As I mentioned, he's set apart from everything on this earth. Everything is dependent upon him. He is transcendently holy. 
R.C. Sproul once again says, His holiness is also transcendent. The word transcendent means literally to climb across. It is defined as exceeding usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond certain limits. When I speak of the transcendence of God, I'm speaking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. Transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. Your God is transcendently holy. As the seraphim call out to God and call him holy, 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 they're worshiping and recognizing his complete otherness. They are in awe at his absolute rule and majesty. The seraphim continue to show the power of this king and the extent of his rule. Notice how God is called the Lord Yahweh of hosts, which means the God of angel armies. So this is a military name for God. One word from his mouth, and he can mobilize angel armies in an instant to do anything that he wills or desires. Not only that, but his rule extends to all the earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. John Piper defines glory as the going public of God's holiness. You can see glimpses of God's glory and his majesty in his creation. You can see it in a beautiful sunset, in the grandeur of a very big mountain. You, you can see it in the vastness of the star-filled sky. You can see it in those things that make you feel really, really really small. And that's how you would be before God. You'd be really, really, really small. And speaking of these things that would make a human being small, just to cap it all off in, these, in the fourth verse, it just says, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God's power and might and holiness is on full display. This is the God you serve. For some of you, I want to ask you, is this the God you worship? Does this describe the God you pray to? Is this the God you serve? Or do you imagine your God to be a much smaller God? He's a God whose primarily purpose in this universe is to serve you. The God of the Bible is a big, holy, grand God. Let your vision of God be informed by this vision and by Scripture. This is who God is. This vision of God also helps you to trust in him. Christian, your holy king is reigning even now. You live in a day that can feel greatly unstable. We are unsure that what the future holds for people of faith in our country. You may be uncertain about whether or not there will be a recession. In inflation keeps on going and going and going. Things are just getting more and more expensive. And we can feel like things are spiraling out of control. But rest assured... This God is in complete control. He is a God who reigns as your holy God. 
Don't shy away from God's holiness and his character because that will be a big part of what will sustain you. Pray that God's holiness grips your heart. Study books and passages like Isaiah 6. Lots of good Christian authors have written books about God's holiness. Read them for the first time or revisit them. Books like Holiness by R.C. Sproul. Books like Holier Than Thou by Jackie Hill Perry. Also, I found a great blessing in my life is to get close to Paul. Uh, I was going to say get close to holy people. The name that came to mind was Paul McDonald, a, a person that, that you've known. And just being in a holy person's home and getting to know them well can really get you closer to God. So get to know holy people like our friend Paul, um, who is in Serbia, but will be coming back for the summer. <laughs> Get to know them well. You must look at and encounter God's holiness. But looking is not enough. Looking at your holy God and not acting, what good will that do you? But beholding God confronts you and it forces you to ask a question. How then shall I live? Well, once you behold your holy God, you ought to repent before your holy God. So once you behold your holy God, you ought to repent before your holy God. As Isaiah 6 progresses, Isaiah switches from speaking of the seraphim to speaking of Isaiah's response to the vision he has seen. Isaiah's response to God's holiness is that he becomes immediately aware and sorrowful over his sin over his lack of holiness. Verse 5 reads, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He begins by crying out, Woe is me. In the previous chapter, Isaiah 5, woes of judgment are pronounced on the people of, a, of Israel for their great sins. And as these woes are pronounced, God announces that judgment is coming from him for the sins of the people, and it is coming through an enemy nation. In light of God's holiness, Isaiah sees that his sin is primarily against God, and that God must judge him for his sin. He says, woe is me. And Isaiah is being called to be a prophet, right? He's probably a pretty good person. He's probably someone who has tried to keep God's law to the best of his ability. Yet even a person who considers himself good comes woefully short before God. Isaiah's very next words show that he recognizes that he is not right with God. He says, for I am lost. The word in the original language translated as lost conveys a much stronger tone. It is like Isaiah is saying, I have been destroyed, I have been ruined, I am cut off, I am utterly and completely undone. He sees his utter inability to stand in the presence of God. And he recognizes that judgment must come from God for his sin. Why is he undone? For I have unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Isaiah has seen the king. And seeing the king has showed him his own uncleanness. 
The immense light of God's holiness exposes his soul's darkness. Sins he never knew he had are immediately revealed. Throughout the pages of Scripture, the presence of God shows people their unworthiness, their uncleanness, and their sin. Think of Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. They hide when they meet God. Think of Job as he sees God at the very end of the book, and he says, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Think of Simon Peter when he first witnesses a miracle by Jesus Christ as Jesus brings a lot of fish to Simon Peter. Simon says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. So he doesn't want to be in Jesus' presence because he knows he'll be reminded of his sin. The light of God's character exposes your sin. I was watching this video where a cleaner is cleaning a room that seems clean to the naked eye. But they have a special black light. It's an ultraviolet UV light. And the UV light shows that this room is actually filthy. Completely filthy. God's holiness is like a UV light on your heart. The presence of his holiness shines on you. And it exposes how dark and sinful your soul actually is. Has God's presence done that to you recently? Have you spent enough time in God's word and his presence to have you expose to have exposed your sin? Remember God's word is a two-edged sword that that knives open our heart. Or do you stop yourself from getting close to God's word? Because you have patterns of sin in your life that you just don't really want to address. Christian, it might be painful to deal with the sin in your life, but it is worth it. The sin will not bring fulfillment and is grievous in God's sight. So look to God's character and his holiness and repent of your sin. How do you talk about your sin? I have noticed that when people confess their sin, they often hesitate to say, I have sinned against the Lord. But instead, they say things like, I'm struggling, or I fell. I'm concerned that too often we can use words that can minimize the sin in our lives. But when, we, when we're like David and we say, I have sinned against the Lord, we, under, we come to understand better who we're sinning against, and how bad our sin truly is. Sometimes we can look at sins of this world and the sins of others and view those as terrible. But we can make peace with the remaining sin in our own lives. Some of you might have put to death long-standing sin in your life. But there is sin that remains. And are you continuing to fight the sins in your life that don't seem to have immediate consequences? Perhaps sins like anger towards someone you love, sins of the tongue, sins of gossip, covetousness, gluttony, and lack of self-control. And while these sins are not as devastating in their effects immediately, they are still acts of rebellion against the Lord. Bring these sins to the light. 
Confess them to a brother and sister. Bring them to the light of God's holiness and grace. By the grace of Jesus Christ, you have the power to defeat these sins. For those of you who aren't Christian, I want to challenge you to compare yourself to God, not to other people. I think it's very easy to compare ourselves to other people around us and say, well, at least I'm not bad as that guy. But the person you ought to compare yourself to is God. And as you've seen, the God of the Bible is absolutely perfect. And if you're honest with yourself, if you compare yourself to him, you're unclean. This God of the Bible dwells in blind and unapproachable light and is completely pure and separate from sin. And when you break this law, you offend this king, this God who created you. And because of that, he must judge you for your sins. Do you see the horror of your sin before a holy God? But know this, that God also gives you hope. Isaiah has seen the king, the Lord of hosts, He has come to the end of himself. He has immense guilt and sorrow over his sin. But God doesn't end there. He provides a way of escape. He provides a way of atonement for Isaiah. A way for Isaiah to be made right before God. There is hope for Isaiah, and there is also hope for you. The text says in verse 5, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah was made clean by God. His sin was atoned for. What does it mean to atone for sin? Well, atone comes from the bigger word atonement. And I don't think this is intentional, but this word can actually be broken down into syllables that is very helpful for us to understand what it means. You can break it down as at one mint. It is to be made at one with God. Since Adam and Eve sinned, all humans fall short of his glory. And since God is absolutely morally pure, he cannot simply sweep injustice and sin under the rug. This is what distinguishes the Christian God from the Muslim God. In Islam, Allah is a law unto himself and can forgive forgive whomever he wants without a sacrifice. But in Christianity, God must be true to his holy character. And he cannot forgive without atonement, or he would violate his own character. God must deal with sin through sacrifice. Notice that the burning coal which comes to Isaiah's lips comes from an altar. What is an altar? Well, an altar is where sacrifices are made. It is where rams, goats, and lambs are sacrificed to atone for sins on a regular basis. By taking the burning coal from the altar and applying it to Isaiah's lips, God is revealing that sacrifice, sacrificial atonement, is the source of Isaiah's cleansing. But the blood of bulls and lambs isn't enough. Ultimately, you need a greater sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice is the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah was forgiven based on the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is how you can be forgiven as well. Jesus Christ is absolutely holy. He is the Son of God. He is morally pure and he is able to make atonement for sinful people like you and like me. In fact, it is most likely that the vision of the Holy King in Isaiah 6 is a vision of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Well, in John 12, verse 41, Isaiah brings up the verses which we will soon look at in verses 11 to 13. And John the Apostle says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the one he saw his glory was Jesus Christ. John is talking about how Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. So think about this entire vision of who God is. It's really about who our Lord Jesus Christ is. That's how holy and absolutely morally pure he, he is. And the holy king of the universe, who dwelt in unapproachable light, was sent as a helpless babe to live the perfect life that you can never live and to fulfill all of God's law that you can never fulfill. He came as the spotless lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was the one that Isaiah speaks of in, verse, in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. If you don't know Christ, he is the one who provides you hope at being with one with this holy God. He is the son of God who God puts forward as the perfect sacrifice to die for sinners. So, so repent of your sins, flee your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal peace and everlasting life. Christian, Jesus Christ is also the one who calls you to live a holy life. And he has given you his Holy Spirit to help live holy. Live out your calling and walk in God's holiness by continuing to repent of your sin. Repentance, turning away from your sin, is not a one-time thing, but it's a lifelong pursuit. So even today, write out specific sins in your life to kill and make a plan to kill them. Because of what Christ has done for you, and because God has said, be holy as I am holy. Pursue holiness in your life. Kill sins and cling closer to the Lord. So far, we have seen that Isaiah has responded to his holy God by repenting before him. But notice that Isaiah doesn't stop there. He also serves his holy king and his holy God. And God calls you to also serve your holy God in verses 9 to 13. After the angels come and forgive Isaiah, God decides to send Isaiah out. God has a task for him. Verse 8 reads, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God was looking for someone to proclaim his message. We will look mainly at verse 8 and briefly touch upon verses 9 to 13. For now it can be said that this will be a very, very difficult message that Isaiah is asked to proclaim. You can see that even in the question that God puts forward. Who shall go for us? It's like, who? Who in the land can possibly go? 
But Isaiah offers himself up. He enthusiastically cries out, Here I am, send me, Lord. Isaiah has been awestruck by his holy God. He has seen his God's overflowing and immense holy love. He has been forgiven of his sin. So when God asks, he is like a kid. He is like me as a kid. When I respond to my parents' request to go in to get McDonald's, send me, send me now. He's really, really enthusiastic. This task Isaiah calls us to, or is called to, is enormously challenging. Isaiah is commanded by God to preach a message of repentance. But as you can see in verses 9 to 13, it is a message that won't be heeded. It is a message that won't be answered. The people will continue to reject God's message over and over. And in God's mysterious providence, God will harden the people's hearts to reject the message. Yet the people will still harden their hearts too. But the main point is that Isaiah will spend the rest of his life preaching a message that most of the nation will almost entirely reject. How does Isaiah have the motivation to do that? Like, if, if, if you're a salesman, one of the frustrating things about sales is door-to-door sales. I did this as a university student, and you just get rejected over and over and over and over again. And if you don't have a good product, then that can be really, really frustrating, and you cannot feel like you're wanting to continue to go on. But how does Isaiah go on? Well, he has, been, he has seen and been gripped by his holy God. He has been forgiven by his king. God's holiness is like a nutritious, well-balanced meal that gives him the energy to continue to serve. Athletes know that they will perform best when they eat nutritious meals and have a properly balanced diet. Perhaps they'll be able to perform decently for a game or two, eating a burger, french fries, and popcorn. But over the long term, the performance will suffer. They will lack the nutrition to compete well. For you to serve God over the long term, God's holiness might be, must be part of your regular Christian diet. It must be part of what you soak in and see on a consistent basis. What aspect of the vision Isaiah received helps him to fulfill this commission that he's given? The text doesn't say. I would just say it's all of God. All of God propels him to this mission. God's holy kingship over all the earth gives him confidence. God's moral purity gives him a sense of horror over the sins of his nation and a desire to tell them. And certainly God's holy love, personally shown to Isaiah through cleansing his sins, gives him deep gratitude for all that God has done for him. And notice that God uses people that were once rebellious against him to be his servants. He forgives them, he justifies them, and then he sends them out. Do you want to serve God faithfully for years? Well, drink and eat up all of God and all of what he's done for you, and particularly in this text, his holiness. I know that for many of you, a big part of your Christian awakening was that you discovered God for who he really is. You may have already been converted and saved and grown up as a Christian, 
But then perhaps in your early 20s or in different years of your life, you began to read books or watch YouTube videos or listen to sermons that helped you see how big your God is. You discovered God's sovereignty and salvation and were struck by his majesty and his magnitude. And you came to this church and you heard God's word opened again and again and again. And you saw that our God is a big, holy God. Praise God for that. But I know that from personal experience, you must continue to remind yourself of these doctrines. Don't let the doctrine of God's holiness be a one-time discovery, something that you just thought about in college. But re-encounter it and let it continue to shape your life. Do the work to press on to know your holy God more so that you may be able to serve him more effectively. This will be the fuel, the well-balanced diet for a life of service. Now, what type of service does this text call you to? Well, Isaiah is called to share a message with the people of Judah and Israel. And similarly, each of you is to share the gospel with the people in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we proclaim. Christ has done much for you. And you ought to share with people this life-changing news. And you live in a country that can resemble Isaiah's day. People's hearts are hard and even hostile to the truth. It might be pretty scary to share the gospel to your family or your neighbor because you know they might reject it. But when you realize that Jesus Christ has given you all authority on heaven and earth to make disciples, that will give you courage. It will give you bravery. When you realize that you have been saved by this holy God, this overflowing joy and gratitude will propel you to share. So dwell on texts like this one in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that give you confidence that God will be with you. Maybe God is calling some of you today to help spread the gospel in another nation. Maybe God is calling some of you to help spread the gospel in another church, in another land, or another part of the city. Be like Isaiah. Be gripped by a vision of his holiness and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. But for all those who want to be sent, you have to understand that you also must live a holy life. And there's a general principle in Scripture, the more holy a life you live, the more useful you will be to the Lord. Paul in the book of Timothy says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel used for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for every good work. This church needs leaders. We need more small group leaders. We need more elders. And I want to speak particularly in this instant to the men of the church. Maybe you are holding on to a sin that prevents you from being an elder. Maybe you are holding on to a pattern of sin in your life that prevents you from being a small group leader. Have you ever thought about what the clinging of this sin does to other people? That your usefulness and your holy life doesn't just affect you. 
Your holiness also affects others. So put sin to death today. Kill it. Kill sins of pride. Kill the sin of pornography. Put it to death and chase after the Lord. Because if you do, you will be a more you will be able to be an effective servant of the Lord. But you must put it to death. There are secondary applications to also hear from this text. Perhaps you find yourself in a situation where you are called to serve the Lord in a very difficult way. It it might be a family member that you are called to care for. It might be a job where your boss is continually angry at you, and you just don't know if you have the strength to carry on. Well, have you ever thought of thinking and dwelling upon God's holiness? Have you felt, if you've, have you thought about dwelling upon his, his unshakable plan for your life? Look at your king. Then ponder all that he's done for you through Jesus Christ to rescue you from a life of sin. And then seek to respond to him by serving him with gladness, even when it's tough in the circumstances you find yourself in. There are some things in life that we don't want to attend to, but we know that we ought to. And holiness is one of those things. I want to close by tying this together by looking at the burning coal in verse 6. The burning coal was applied to Isaiah's lips by the angel, and, and that burning coal, after he had that burning coal, Isaiah then was cleansed from his sins And his guilt was gone. That burning coal would have been painful. It would have hurt. It would have hurt a lot. But it healed him. It cleansed him. It changed him. And staring into God's holiness might hurt. It might hurt to confront the sins in your life. It will be uncomfortable. It will confront you. It will convict you. It will compel you. But it will also change you. It will change you into a more holy and humble Christian. So by the grace of God and the strength of the Holy Spirit, let us as Christians seek to live holy and humble lives, staring and beholding God's holiness all of our days. Please pray with me. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we ask that you may use your words to change us. That you may use your words to make us more holy, humble people, more hungry for you and your righteousness. Lord, I also pray for people here who don't know you. I pray that that this vision of God's holiness would, at one sense, be terrifying, but in the other sense, be compelling and be something that they want to, who they want to know and experience. So, Lord, I would just pray that you may cause some to know you today who don't. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.